Hello, and welcome to Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton, and I've been teaching maths for 15 years now. I'm pretty confident in my teaching ability, but I think we all have those moments when we wish we could quickly clarify something about the spec with the people who wrote it. Well, that's exactly what we're doing on this podcast. I'm putting your questions to the exam experts, so what insights would it be useful for me to gather? My name's Bridget, I teach psychology, I teach students from a variety of backgrounds, so how do you ensure all contexts are fair for all students, and how do you reduce the risk of introducing bias? Do you know what? Back to the Future, aside from being a brilliant film, is a great example of the confusion that develops when you're catapulted into a cultural context you don't understand. 1955 Doc can't fathom that in 1985 the President of the USA is an actor. That's unthinkable. All he knows is a world where only a lucky few have recently got one tiny TV. His understanding of celebrity is limited because his own life experience means he hasn't got the whole context. So, what do exam boards do to make sure that, like you've said Bridget, no student is disadvantaged because they don't understand the context? I'm going to meet Mike. He's AQA's lead assessment writer for GCSE Physics, and I'm hoping he'll be able to explain exactly how exam writers ensure it's the content rather than the context that's ultimately being tested. Okay, Mike, thank you very much for the kind invite to come and speak to you at AQA today. I want to start with a question that's come in on Twitter by at DRoseMaths. He says, how much content must be contextualised? What are the rules here with this? From a physics exam point of view, there is no real limit to uh, how much should be contextualised and how much shouldn't be. As a question writer, you sort of decide about whether it would be appropriate to have a context or whether it wouldn't. If there's a question about electricity, uh, you might choose not to have a context because the electrical circuit might be quite complicated. Whereas if it was a question about energy transfers and a context was appropriate, uh, you would build that into the question. It generally depends on whether the question that's going to be asked fits in with a everyday context that students would probably appreciate something that they might have experienced um, in their everyday life. This recent exam series, I had written a question about a zip wire in a park, but fundamentally um, it was simply testing whether a student understood how to work out gravitational potential energy. So while it hopefully is something that students at some point in their playground days might have actually uh, had experience of, it didn't fundamentally alter the question that was actually being tested. So they are designed really to be or relatively simple contexts. How does it fit into the assessment objectives? Because we've heard a lot about those in this in this in the past two seasons actually of, the, of this podcast. Because I know there are requirements to have a certain amount of AO2 and AO3 questions. Is that where context feeds in? Uh, it does, but I think it probably depends a fair bit on the subject. I was talking to a colleague earlier today about chemistry and a previous conversation that I had with the chair of chemistry who rules ultimately, I suppose, on the level of the chemistry and the accuracy of the chemistry, said uh, some years ago that chemistry questions with context lose students in the context rather than just assessing them on the chemistry, Mm. whereas biology and physics questions are usually enhanced by having a context because it is something that the students can actually relate to from their everyday life. Why the difference? I guess it's shaped by my worldview that 
ultimately everything we do in life, there is some aspect of physics behind it. Yeah, this uh, sound booth that we're in now, the microphones that we're speaking into, the computer recording the sounds coming out of our mouths, uh, all of that is physics. The fact that we're sitting on a planet hurtling around the sun uh, is physics. And so I think the student's experience of physics in a classroom is shaped by those contexts. And so it is normal within the subject to have the context added to the questions, whereas perhaps a student's experience of perhaps chemistry is more to do with the practical aspect of the chemical reactions that they study. Similarly, biology is sort of driven by the interactions of biological organisms, which again is part of your real-world experience mm-hmm. as opposed to just something that's very abstract. I think maybe that is part of the answer. That is, I've never, never thought of that before, that different subjects lend themselves better to context because of students' real-world experience. That, that's absolutely fascinating, that. What I want to dive into next, Mike, is, is, is writing questions involving context. So let's imagine that you sit down and you, you're wanting to write a physics question and, you, and you're wanting to, to have a contextual element to it. Can you just talk us through the process from start to finish? What's in your mind first? I think probably the genesis for most context based questions that have worked well has been an observation that I've made about something that I've come across in everyday life. So uh, some years ago, I went on a year nine residential where we went on a sort of a bushcraft camp. And the bushcraft people who ran the camp were spending pretty much about three or four hours heating up an outdoor pizza oven by putting small twigs and leaves and branches in it, ready so that at lunchtime, the 200 students that we'd brought with us for the Year 9 camp could then in very rapid succession cook their pizzas in this extremely, extremely hot outdoor pizza oven. It occurred to me that it was quite an interesting thing and an interesting way of cooking 200 pizzas in a half an hour. uh, I thought, oh, I'll remember that and save that for an instance when I can actually write a question about it, uh, which became a question then that uh, students will have sat a few years ago and will probably still exist there on Exampro, having to do with the specific heat capacity of the pizza oven itself, the colour of the pizza oven. One of the questions which didn't work so well for this one was to suggest the name of one solid biofuel that the students could have used to heat up the inside of the oven. This overlapped a little bit with chemistry, so there were all sorts of answers that were incorrect. Some students suggested that you could put some shells in it and burn the shells uh, because they were thinking shells are organisms and therefore that would be a biofuel, but you can't burn shells. All I really wanted them to say was sticks, twigs, charcoal would have done. But as it was, um, some students wrote banana skins. Some students even wrote manure. Uh, Now, why would you want to stick a manure into your own pizza oven to cook some food on? But at the same time, those students would have scored a mark because it is a solid biofuel. Um, So in the context of the question, context worked well, except that one little part of it which sort of passed students by, I think, because I think they were overthinking it from a chemistry perspective because it was the concept of biofuels was common content. I'm picturing you almost like a, a poet or a songwriter here, wandering around in your day-to-day existence, getting inspiration for writing questions. And that's that's what I, not what I'm picturing exam writers as. I mean, no offence here, but I'm not seeing them as kind of as artists. But in a sense, that's what it is, right? Yeah, I guess. Uh, so um, the pizza oven is my muse, I think you're, I think you're, <laughs> I like I think you're suggesting. Uh, and I suppose it is part of that. Yeah, I'm sure uh, artists, when they see something that's uh, beautiful, they think, oh, well, I'd like to paint that. And I do feel that that is the way I go about writing a large number of the questions that are context-driven. You know, as I said earlier, some of them, you know, they will inevitably lack context because of what's on the specification. Yes. And it's difficult to frame a, 
a context around it. But yeah, certainly um, the zip wire question is based on my experience. I have two young children and uh, you know, they spend a lot of time on zip wires. Those sorts of interesting things are generally how I start the process. Finding then the the bit of the specification to hang yeah, it on is sure. is then sometimes a bit more difficult because you know sometimes the specification doesn't go quite far enough or you, you decide that it's just something that you've seen that's interesting in your everyday life but you just can't do much with. That is the problem of being an exam writer in that you see a lot of interesting contexts and perhaps only a quarter of them actually make it to the end of the process. Gee, and again, that's uh, going back. I'm dragging this analogy out as much as possible. But the uh, the songwriter or the artist, not ever, not ever, all these ideas make it to the, the final cut of the album. This this is fascinating. And um, so you've you've got the idea, you, you've mapped it up to the specification, and you, and you've got a question. How do you know if that question works? Well, what are you looking for when when you see, you've mentioned earlier on that some questions work well, some questions don't work so well? What what does that actually mean? As part of the creation process for a question, I would write an initial draft which the reviser, who's another experienced examiner, would see and they would offer comments on it. They might say, this question works, this question doesn't work. It might be slightly beyond you know, a typical student experience. Yes. You'd ask the question that you thought the students ought to know the answer from based on the content that they'd been learning about. Often the answer to the question, the mark scheme, is what you'd write first and then think, right, how do I elicit the mark scheme response mm. and the style of the question you choose from a list you know is it something they're supposed to know in which case you might say describe or explain or give one reason if it's something that's slightly beyond their experience you might say suggest so that you know giving them a hint a clue that actually this might be beyond your experience but we're asking you to suggest a possible well, reason so and the kind of command word becomes super important oh yeah it's definitely we're very very careful about which command word matches which sort of mark scheme style and so suggest can also be a clue as to this might not be something that you have been taught about in class it might be something that you're using your knowledge and understanding but in an unusual context or in a way that is beyond your everyday experience and so those questions are a bit more open and inevitably the mark schemes are a little less prescriptive yes have you got any examples of questions that you have written yourself that with the benefit of hindsight you think yeah that that didn't actually work as well as i intended some years ago i wrote about a it was called a camping stove uh, i won't name drop the name of the company that i saw advertise <laughs> it but uh, it was sort of sort of a, a bespoke camping stove that you took away with you put some twigs in not the same as the pizza oven, honest. <laughs> uh, you took away with you, you put some twigs in, you set fire to them, and in addition to provi- providing you with heat to cook food on, you could also charge your phone because it had a USB connection. All right, okay. Nice. So it was actually quite a novel yeah, um, yeah, yeah. device. And this question didn't work so well because the artwork for the camping stove had a mesh on the side of it, and a number of students thought the, the mesh was to help you prepare your food and so the question oh, right. I'd asked was give another advantage of using this camping stove. And, you know, <laughs> simply put, it was you could charge your portable devices yeah, with it. Yeah. But some students thought the, the mesh on the side was a cheese grater. Oh, no. And no. so in addition to <laughs> cooking your food, they said you could grate some cheese as well. I mean, that's so, not a bad idea, though, for no, a patent. That, it it, like it isn't. That. But unfortunately, that wasn't quite what the uh, <laughs> side of the camping stove was for. How do you ensure that these contexts are accessible to all students? I think being a... A relatively young person <laughs> with young kids. I would say that my life experience is pretty typical of someone who lives in the UK. The way in which AQA sets out their introductory statements to questions, making sure that the sentences are short 
So we try to have no more than 20 words in a sentence, breaking up the page so there's some white space and you know, helpful artwork that contextualizes the question. Uh, my question from last summer about the zip line, yes. for example, had a diagram of someone going down a zip line and the change in vertical height was what they were trying to calculate. Given all the relevant information, I would like to think that someone who'd never been on a zip line ever should have been able to answer that question. And therefore, you wouldn't get a student looking at it going, I'm not even sure where to start here because the information was sort of set out in an easy to access way. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think bias is the, the big thing, certainly from a teacher perspective running through my head when I when I see, I can only speak from a maths perspective, when I see some of, some of the contexts, I think... Is that favouring some of my students over others? Because as soon as that kind of bias comes into play, all of a sudden we're assessing something else other than the actual, in your case, physics content. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. There have been contexts that I've thought would make a good question in the past. And at some point in the question writing process, someone's gone, I don't actually think this adds anything to the question. Mm. And therefore, I think we should probably change it to something that is more accessible. A question I can think of, again, never made it. My grandmother had some Victorian bed-warming pans on, on, the, <laughs> right. on the wall of her house, which I'm not sure if they were ever used for bed-warming pans. <laughs> right. But the idea is you stick some coals in them, they heat up the bed-warming pans, and you smooth them over the sheets, and that warms up the bed. Wow, okay. And so it's an interesting physics yes. context, but at the end of the day, all I wanted to know was can the students describe conduction in metals, which was a process that was on the old GCSE yes. physics spec. So it gives you a view of how long ago I'm talking about. It was about five years ago. And so the context didn't really work. It didn't have to be a bed warming pan. I was just looking for something that was different to every other way they'd been asked prior to that. So the question changed, and I, I did feel a little bit sad about my grandmother's bed warming <laughs> pans, not, not getting a mention. Um, but at the same time, it, it probably, uh, well, no, it wasn't probably, it was the right decision for that question. And so you draw on the experience of everyone involved in the process. And sometimes, as I just said in that example, the context didn't work. And so it comes out and the question might become a little bit less interesting as a result, but also perhaps more accessible. And that's the important thing, I think, as you said. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because there is this kind of trade-off between interest and accessibility. We talk about this quite a lot in meetings because both I and uh, other question paper writers, some of the meetings that we have in the development process, inevitably I might comment on the context of another examiner's paper and say, yeah, I don't think this adds anything to the question. You've got to be able to deal with the criticisms and be ultimately very thick-skinned about it and not be precious about your particular context or your particular question, which is something you learn pretty fast in the question writing process. You don't stay around very long if if you're thin-skinned. You just wouldn't be able to deal with the criticism. Well, Mike, once again, I've been blown away by the thought that goes into this question writing process. That that happens every single time I speak to somebody from AQA as, as part of this series. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Whether we like it or not, we do have to prepare our kids to answer questions in unfamiliar contexts. What's the best way to do that in lesson time while also making sure we're teaching all the content on the spec? Laurie Luscombe is a maths teacher at the Bluecoat School, Oldham. He's got a bit of a reputation for coming up with impressive context in class, so I'm looking forward to nicking some of his ideas.
So, Laurie, first off, thank you so much for inviting us to your school today. Very few things in life make me happier than speaking with a maths teacher, so I'm very much looking forward to this. But we're talking about something I've got a bit of a problem with, and that's context. So my first question is, how do you feel about context? Did you enjoy teaching with them? I think it's a, it's part of the parcel of teaching any subject. There's the, you know, the questions are going to be contextualised, whichever way we look at it. I think the first point to make is not, is not to see it as a necessary evil you hear that I mean, that's word how i see it i can tell you um, what we need to do is think okay well this is it's part of the package perhaps we've been led down this this road in some of the old style gcse's a levels of we've almost been proceduralized ourselves and we just need to take a step back and go actually no th- there's a bit more to it than just following these these procedures and it's almost that enjoyment factor you know when people are doing maths and solving problems or they're really stuck into the, their own subject area a little bit of that's required to get through these contexts and see the see the other side, if you like. Jeez, because I'm going to put my cards on the table here. Um, as a teacher, I struggle to teach questions involving context. And I think, I mean, this must come through to my kids because I don't think my kids particularly enjoy them either. So what, what do your students take on? Do you think they enjoy these kind of contextual questions? Yeah, I think I think students... And teachers alike, really, I think they get put off by them. Mm. I think that might be, it's a bit of a sweeping generalisation, but I think it may be fair to say you see a great big whopping contextual question Mm. and maybe you don't select them. You know, if you're doing some, be it retrieval practice or whatever it may be, um, you go for the sort of smaller, snappier questions. Or just when it comes to actually, you've got got to the stage where you've got a question that's contextualised and we've got this habit as students and sometimes, you know, as teachers of, not really wanting to sift through the problem. We want to just get to the, in, in the maths case, we want to get to the maths. Mm. And so, yeah, I can, I can understand the, the sort of the, the issues with that. And having given it a lot of thought, one of the things that I've come to the conclusion of is subject knowledge. I think the more I read around it, the more I, I kind of understand and appreciate that a strong subject knowledge allows you to make those connections within a topic. It allows you to see them, in our case, the maths running through the problem and and almost not getting taken away by the context itself. I can really relate to this because I reckon a mistake I made, I reckon I made this for about 12 and a half years, and I'd be fascinated your view on this, Laurie. I came in with the context too soon. So I'd be almost using the context to introduce a topic. So let's take something like, I don't know, lowest common multiple or something like that. Instead of just focusing straight in on the maths, I'm coming in on the context. So here's an interesting scenario which, which requires students to use lowest common multiple. But to go back to your point, my kids weren't at the stage yet where they had the knowledge to fully appreciate that. So I found that they were actually focusing too much on the context and not actually on the on the maths itself. Is that something you can relate to? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've in, in some areas I've I've come to a bit of a halfway house whereby I completely agree. If, if they don't have the subject knowledge, how can they access the, the, yes. the arguably trickier contextual questions? Right? Okay, I think that's that's a fairly uh, fairly well appreciated. So the way I've sort of looked at it, and when I was really thinking about what I've done over the last couple of years in particular with context, I thought, Do you know what, when we talk about context. We often think about lobbing a story of some yes. kind on, you know, you don't just give a ratio question, you start talking about Anne and Bev who've got <laughs> some random marbles, for, for, you know, for whatever reason. And it, and it is, it's superfluous, it's not really, it kind of is white noise, it's fat. It is, that you it's redundant, right? Yeah, yeah. It's redundant, and there's, there's, there's a skill in that, I think that's part of our job is, mm. you know, we have to sort of work with the students and get them to be able to decipher information thinking about context in a different way yes, not yes. just sort of the, the throwing the story on the top if you like like a 
cloak. Mm. And I've come to, to realise that it can be done, perhaps this is a different sense of context, but how we set out the maths and, and how we set the context in that sense can be a bit of a, well, I'm going to argue it can be a bit of a game changer. We'll see what people think. Okay. Um, can you give me an example? For example, I've got through sort of the deep thinking of subject knowledge, I've gone away and I've, I've picked a topic and I've thought maybe volume. Okay. And I've thought, right, how can we make sure that we ensure consistency so that what we teach doesn't change and the facts don't alter and we don't say, oh, by the way, what you learned in year seven, forget that. Now it's this. Yes. And I thought, ah, prisms and um, and cones and that area of volume, that's an absolute beauty of a, of a topic because any pyramid, what, what's the consistent fact there? It's always one third of the related, yes. of the related uh, cylinder. Yes. Or cuboid yes. or prism that it, that it forms. So I thought, right, okay, a few years back, I thought, what can I do that hangs on this really principal factor that is consistent Mm-hmm. When they get further down the line to, to sort of trickier shapes, it's still consistent, but maybe isn't sort of dry. How can I can I how can I put the context around this? And so that is one of the topics where I I go for it. I go for it with a, an experiment, if you like. I wow. get water jugs, and this is at the start, right? This is kind and of the, to introduce the start. It. Wow. Okay. Um, so I, I've I've got the full works. I've got three D <laughs> cones. I've got three D cylinders. Um, not that you can have a 2D one, but, um, and I've got jugs of water, and, and, and in a nutshell, we're, we're filling them up, and the class trying to generate a bit of excitement. Yes, you yes, know, yes. Science have got it all with their experiments. Yeah, I'm trying to get the class like around, it. and I'm trying to make, I'm getting predictions. How many cones ah, are gonna fill this cuboid? And yes, similar with the, the related shapes, and the kids love it. They've got these predictions. It's not taking up a huge deal of time, mm. and they're, they're convinced it's going to be two, or is it going to be two point seven, or will there be? seven yes, of these yes. cones eight of these cones or pyramids and of course we then get to see what it is yes do you know what Laurie you've, you've hit upon somebody here that, that I've been getting wrong because you're really drawing a distinction between different types of context here we, we have mm. the redundancy on the, on the one hand so I'm thinking about how I've introduced volume in the past and I'm cringing already here because I'm, I'm telling I'm telling stories I've got those fake setup things where there's characters involved it's some scenario yeah, that would yeah. never happen at all and that that's redundant because again kids can't get to the deep maths for me that needs to come later on once they've learnt the maths then they need to develop this skill to filter out what's relevant and not but you're talking about something different here aren't you this context here in in the volume thing you're describing is integral to understanding the concept of volume in a way if that makes sense yeah and i'm going to refer i referred to it earlier i'm going to come back to it about subject knowledge it's yes. the sitting down and thinking about subject knowledge that then can determine how am i going to contextualize this in the first instance like yes. you refer to because again you've hit upon something else there because dan willingham talks about that the problem with these these surface features is that kids remember those so kids i mean i'll never forget that this was a low point in my in my teaching career whenever kids came out of an exam and there was a question on lowest common multiple involving parrots how many times does a parrot squawk and the next yeah, person squawk yeah, yeah. at the same time and the kid came out and said sir you never taught us parrots and I'm thinking, are you winding me up here or what? Mm. And this, this is the problem. The kids had latched onto that surface feature and not remembered or not been able to establish what the deep maths is. But when you're talking about context in the volume lesson, kids are going to remember the third thing because that's the memorable part of that demonstration. So my next question is, now we have listeners from, from all subjects listening to this. Now they'll have been loving our chat about maths. Everybody loves talking about mathematics, of course. But if they're sat there thinking... Well, what's what's in this for me here? I, I like the sound of this approach. Is this going to work in my subject? Do you have any experience or any kind of insight about whether this 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 kind of thinking translates across other subjects? I tell you what, I, I'd like to draw on something that, again, 
I'm, I am biased. It's come from a mathematical background, but I've got a, a book here that stems from the, the step examination. Okay. Okay, which is the one, for people who don't know, that's the sixth term examination paper that some sixth formers may attempt to help get a place in Cambridge and, and Warwick. Yes. Now, this chap, he's talking from a maths background, but this is the kind of thing that I do think is applicable elsewhere, and I think it's for students and teachers alike. Yes. So the book is called Advanced Problems in Mathematics, Preparing for University, and it's by Stephen Silkloss. Reread the question. Check you've understood what's wanted. Okay. Simple. Or so it sounds. Reread the question to look for clues, the way it's phrased, maybe the way a formula might be written, or just other relevant parts of the of the question. You may think that the question setters are trying to catch you out, but usually nothing could be further from the truth. They're probably doing all in their power to make it easier for you by trying to tell you what to do. Try to work out exactly what it is that you don't understand. How hard is that? That's a mm. that's one that could get overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. You know, really, I mean, be specific. One of the things we need to do is talk to the kids about this. What do they do when they can't? I mean, I like to say it, phrase it, is what do they do when they can't see the light? And then he says, can you simplify it? So your maths, you know, can you can you just put some a more simple problem ahead of yourself and try that first? Reduce the the, the complexity. Again, with a I suppose with a different subject, can you just write out? a little bit to get you started can you not take the entire big question as a whole break it down and and just focus on a little bit to get you started can you look at special cases is there anything that you remember that is a a real key fact about this topic be it a key fact about a a certain event that happened in in whichever other subject we're referring to and then his final one is just just write down your thoughts okay write them down and in particular try to express the exact reason why you get stuck we spoke in season one to to AQA examiners who write these questions. They're obliged to make them unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So kids are going to be surprised almost by definition in these exams. And that's what freaks kids out, isn't it? And the frustrating, and I don't know if you, if you um, see this too, Laurie, one of the most frustrating things for me as a teacher is whenever you say to a student, well, come on, that question was about lowest common multiple. And then they go, all oh, right, I can, oh. do, I can do it now. Yep. I can do it. Yep. Well, that question was about trigonometry. Oh, if I'd have known that, I could have done it. And you've provided the cue. And that's and that that's the thing, because the skill is knowing what it's about, right? And when we've got all these unpredictable questions, yeah, it's, it's really challenging for the kids and challenging for the teacher to, to empower them to be able to spot which, the deep structure. Which makes you think you could run a similar, and I've thought this before, you could run a similar task where it's a bunch of questions, total mix, and you ask the students to label, okay, what topic is it? Yeah. Let's read through it. What topic yes. is it? But I'm cautious with that. Because that's, Tell me why. Um, because it suggests, it, it somewhat suggests one topic per question. Right, okay. That's predefined. And there can be so many areas of math that yes. come into it. And then you could say, okay, we'll get them to write down all the topics. But sometimes you need to work your way through the question to see what they're going to be. So I, I prefer the other one of describing the steps and one of the things I have done in the past is working in pairs with one sort of expert who's got a model solution or preferably model solutions yes. if it can be done more than one yes. way they've had a chance to read them and get the head around it and when the student says the first line of what they would do the expert reveals that line so that the student can see where they're up to yes but it's again you're saving time you're involving communication and every time they say the next line the expert can reveal it slightly and it's this idea with the expert of talking through their thinking. How do they know what's coming next? How do they spot it? It's so important. Let me pitch this to you, Laurie. So 
you you probably be aware, but, but but listeners may not. One of my approaches for dealing with this is the idea of these SSDD problems, these same structure, different deep problems. And this is this is to address a lot of the issues we've talked about today. The fact that when kids are taught things compartmentalized, they don't have to think about what topic it is. If, if every question for, for five lessons is on Pythagoras, well, where's the need to think about what it's about? So it doesn't matter what context you throw at kids, oh, it's Pythagoras, oh, it's, oh, it's volume, because every other thing is. So the idea of SSDD is to present kids with problems that on the surface look the same, same surface, but actually the depth there, the, the deep structure is different. Same surface, different deep structure. And I don't know if you've dabbled with these, Laurie, but God almighty, the kids find these hard. Mm. Whenever you've got, so let's take parrots. I'll give you four questions, each involving a parrot, but I'll tell you what, the four different areas of maths. Mm. And the kids are like, what? I thought parrots was lowest common multiple. Well, no, you know, and again, it's it helps in the exam because in the exam, kids are going to get these questions in isolation. They're not going to be signposted as to what the topic's about. And they've got to, they've got to find this deep structure themselves. Have, have, have you dabbled with something similar? And, and how have your kids found this kind of approach? I've jotted down an idea, actually, which I had at the sort of the back end of last year by my own sort of admission I've not got round to, to trialling out yet and it was sort of a maybe you call it a dead steal from the SSD I don't know <laughs> I'll get the it legal was, team no no it was, a, it was along the same sort of lines and, and to, I think I think really to complement it rather than, than replace it I don't think it's one or the other it was the idea of spinning it round the other way round so that instead of having different areas of maths with surface content surface structure looking very yes. similar having it switched around so that you've got a very similar deep structure, but actually the surfaces look very different. Right, okay. You could have a straight line equation of some form. Yes, yes. You could have something to do with ratio. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Um, Tables of values. All of which could have a relatively similar, they could all they could all look completely different. Yes. Okay? One's about parrots, something else is about cakes, all sorts, right? But actually, the mathematics underneath it it's all really quite similar. Yes. Okay. And so you've got uh, kids are finding out the gradient and they realise, oh, right, that's linked to the nth term. Yes, and then yes. Got, and so actually the calculations are, are really much the same. But I wondered about having an odd one out in there. Mm, to throw So them. all four look very different, mm. but three of them, the maths is really similar. That's interesting. One of them, it's not. And I just, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it's not something I've really dabbled you with. Need, you need a catchy name. That's the key to this. You I did. A catchy oh, name I came up with a catchy name for something else, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> what would it, is it like DDSD? SSDs? I don't know. If you call it that, as I say, the legal team will be on to there. If we've got teachers from other subjects or from mathematics listen to this and they want to start doing something similar to your approach, is there any kind of generic advice you could give how do you start thinking about these kind of activities well where does the thought process start when you when you're putting something like this together to to start with the context but in a useful way i'm gonna have to come back to it craig on subject knowledge (laughs) well it's the key to it i think um i think it it has the wrong connotations occasionally for people that you get this idea of the the sort of the geeky professor Mm. and who can't empathize and clearly that's not what what it's meant having the whereabouts to appreciate the connections across topics means that you are then better placed to deliver that Mm. and to provide opportunities for the students to, to make those connections which all in all means that in these contextual problems that are going to vary from bit to bit students are much quicker at honing in on what is the crux of the problem what yes. is the the mathematics in, in our case but that's where talking to teachers and collaboration mm. comes in that I don't think it has to be about the wordy scenario the wordy context it can be the the context that you've set up the, yes. the lesson in and then it's a case of when you come to more sort of exam 
prep, if you like, in that sort of point in time, it's as as I'm sure many teachers, uh, you know, teachers all the time are talking about this, explaining your thoughts as to why you're stuck. And I think it's just useful. I'm it's, I'm finding it useful reminding myself. Get on the visualizer. Mm. Have the guts. Will you have the guts to try? A question that you've not looked at before the lesson. Oh wow! Well, that's interesting. Okay. Because I mean, I, you know, I, oh, I have to it's put making myself... me a bit nervous here. Yeah, it, it's one of those, isn't it? And, yes. And and you kind of think, oh god. Do you know what? That's really interesting. That because oh, I'm thinking about this. Whereas, if you've never seen that question before, that is watching a mathematician live. Yep. Out of their comfort zone trying to talk through it all now that isn't math specific advice either is it right that you i could imagine an english teacher being chucked a curveball a random question a history teacher you could even get the kids to to pick one out at random from a past exam paper just to add a bit of a a bit of a a lottery style to it i'll have question four from 2016 paper three and so on i mean my heart's going like mad here thinking because again it makes me a bit uncomfortable it's interesting isn't it i'll tell you what laurie i mean we're going to have to bring this to it. I could speak to you for, for hours and hours and hours about this. But but just to wrap things up, you've you've really made me think hard about context. I came into this conversation, I hate context, you know, because <laughs> I, 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 I see it as redundant. And, and it's I, I know why it's got to be in there, because we want kids to be able to filter out redundancy, but it annoys me. And crucially, I always leave it till the end of my teaching. I teach the kids the, the mathematics, the deep maths. And then once they've got that, now we'll focus on, I'll add in some context, can we whittle it out, get round it, and then get back to the maths. But what I'm picking up here is that actually there's there's a different type of context. That's one type, the kind of story type, but there's this different type of context that actually you can hang these mathematical ideas on to actually make them make more sense to kids. And perhaps that's the type of context that I as a teacher need to be thinking a little bit more of. So, I quite like that. I think that's a nice way, yeah. How to hang the maths from it. I've just come up with it. I'm going to copyright yeah. that. That's good. That's good. And I'm going to work on a catchy title. Perfect. Yeah. Well, we're, <laughs> well, well, again, I've learned absolutely loads here, Laurie. So thanks so much for inviting us into your classroom today. It's been absolutely fantastic. You're welcome. And uh, thank you. If anybody uh, if anybody does try the, the water jug lesson, just please make sure the lid's on carefully. <laughs> good advice. It's wet pants halfway through a lesson. Doesn't look good. <laughs> If your appetite for conversations about context has been whetted, go back to your podcast feed and find the first bonus episode of Series 1 where you can hear about cultural capital in exams. There are plenty of articles to get stuck into in this episode's show notes as well. I'll be back after the Christmas break putting more of your questions to the experts. But in the meantime, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag InsideExams. Until next time, goodbye.